0: Prepare thine ears, prepare thine bum, for the Things We Think About
1: podcast has come. Now for your hosts, Kenny and Aaron.
0: Hello, hello everybody out there in internet land. This is Aaron and this is Things We Think About. Today we have a great episode for you. We have Jan, not Jan, as I accidentally referred to him in our correspondence. He's an amazing person and we talk all things transhuman. There's dogs that glow in the dark. There's cyborgs. You don't want to miss it, folks. And of course, if you're listening, I suppose you're probably not going to miss it. You're just waiting for me to stop rambling so you can get to it. And I appreciate that, of course. But before we get there, I just want to mention that we're now on Google Play. And Google Play is, from what I understand, a fine source. Unfortunately, there is a long and complicated link that I'll just put in the description. For whatever reason, Anchor and Google Play don't play nice. So you know on Anchor, you might see links to other places to get the podcast. Unfortunately, Anchor doesn't have that compatibility with Google. I'm not sure what's going on there, but we'll definitely have that link to all those who use Google Play, and we'll see how that goes. So as you may be aware, we don't have any advertising on this show. We've set it up in a way, and this is from the start, that we don't want to take advertising. We have a Patreon ready to go if we ever reach more than five listeners, and we would start the whole e-begging process there but I would be remiss to say that there aren't certain products and services that touch me in special ways. Ways that, given the chance, I'd love them to be our sponsor. Well, one of those things touched me this week, and I want to share with you and nominate the humble McChicken as tribute. The McChicken, for as long as time has existed, was the last holdout for the ever-changing value menu at McDonald's, staying strong at a dollar. Well, this era has come to an end, and I recently found out they are now $1.79, almost a full dollar more. Now, my first reaction here is to thank McDonald's. Yeah, you know, I don't go there very often, but when I do go, or to any fast food place, it's because I'm ready to eat some feelings, and I want to do that in the dirtiest, cheapest, fastest way possible. McDonald's is no longer, and really hasn't been for quite a long time, I suppose, the place where I can do that in a way that only hurts my self-esteem and not my wallet. As McDonald's has been upping their game with the pressure of encroaching fast casual places and other brands of their ilk, they seem to have shifted away from the cheap, poverty-friendly meals of the past. You would think their strive toward evolving tech with fully automated restaurants, giant 2001 Space Odyssey monolith ordering screens that have a disturbing amount of fecal matter, Uber Eats, and of course the McCafe, that these things could subsidize their cheaper fare but instead they seem to only have steadily increased the price of the Walk of Shane McChickens and other burgers that the whole concept of McDonald's was founded upon. I'm sure some of this is just normal inflation. You have rising food costs from an exploitive and unsustainable, at least when it comes to the environmental impact, business model. But either way, I'm grateful for whatever factors are at play here to help keep me out of the golden arches. Especially to millennials, McDonald's has a lot of real estate in regards to childhood nostalgia. The commercials, the mounds of toys, it all plays a part. Especially those who grew up in small towns, it was a choice usually between McDonald's drive through or Walmart. And of course, if it wasn't past a certain time, McDougal's it was. But as I roll into my 30s and all of those drunk friends I drove with on those fateful trips enter either their second children or their second marriage, it seems more of a relic than ever. The dollar seventy nine McChicken reminds me of this, and especially as I hop on my bike and pedal my way to the real cheap, self-aware. I know what I'm about. Son, alternative Taco Bell. I'm reminded that the McChicken is unofficially today's sponsor. All right. So, without further ado, today's guest is Jan. He's a very well traveled and well versed individual, and also happens to have his master's in the philosophy of science and technology, and is currently about to start his PhD. Like I said, we had an amazing conversation about all things transhuman. I'll say that it really did help me dive even further into the subject, and I'm really grateful to have these conversations and each episode seems to improve upon my and hopefully you in the audience, your versatility in the subject. This continues next week. We'll have another transhumans guest and probably the week after that we'll transition to some of the rubber hits the road concepts of transhumanism. So we'll hopefully be talking to someone who is concerned with actual prosthetics and how machinery is used how some of the neuro tech is actually being used in the field and things like that. So listening to these episodes, I hope you can feel like I do a little more confident and importantly, curious and interested on in the subject. So without further ado, here's Jan. So Yan, uh, tell me about yourself. I mean, uh, what got you where you are today? What got you into transhumanism? What's, what's your journey been like?
1: Uh, well, it's it's been not a super long journey. I'm currently in the Netherlands. I'm a graduate at the philosophy department here at the University of Twente. And I'm about to start a PhD, so I'm still early stage research, you know. But I've always been interested in the philosophy behind technology, right? That pretty much started during my bachelor's degree Uh, When I got into environmental sustainability, into, you know, futurology, so about how how technology can really solve some of the big issues that we're facing today. What really got me into transhumanism proper, into the whole aesthetic, was I've always been a big science fiction fan and i first got into transhumanism as the idea of enhancing the human through a video game actually the deus Ex video games uh so that was my introduction to the sort of aesthetic to the idea of human enhancement you know of merging man and machine and later with the academic interest in futurology and the future of technology and how we can solve sort of big social issues through the use of technology it just kind of clicked, right? When you have this sort of uh, aesthetic or technophile sensibility and then actually want to apply it to something. And that was pretty much the turning point for me where I said this is interesting stuff. People are working on it and have been working on it for some, quite some time on radically altering and trying to improve the human condition through technology. So this is gotcha. kind of where, I, where I'm coming from.
0: Yeah, that's interesting you say that. For me, certainly media has, has had a huge impact on my interest in the subject, of course. I'm more of your armchair technophile <laughs> than anything. I'm, I'm really just fascinated by the whole thing, and I'm trying to learn more all the time. You know, as far as relating to transhumanism, what do you define it as?
1: It's kind of hard to define Because when you look at transhumanism and the people who talk about it, do research in that area, either explicitly or on things that we could define as transhumanism, it's really a very diverse bunch, right? You can Mm -hmm. define transhumanism kind of as a philosophical position, you can define it politically, you can define it socially as a sort of social movement that seeks the advancement of the human condition, right? You can see it, as you said, you come from this sort of, you, you talk about how influential popular media was for you. And you can see it as a sort of collection of media tropes or of directions and sensibilities in media. I think that also constitutes transhumanism to some degree. So it's, it's a little bit of all of these things together. And I think you when you want to define it, you define it contextually. So it really depends what position you're looking at and what's interesting for your research or for your current interest. Right. Some people are happy with just the sort of cool, fancy uh, stuff they find in media and science fiction of saying, "Okay, we can somehow merge man and machine." Sci-fi movies and look how look where that goes, where that leads us, which I think is very interesting. What first sort of came from historically is as a philosophical movement of the idea that we can potentially alter. Uh, the meaning and the condition of humanity in radical ways. In ways that are uh, so fundamentally different from what we used to do before. And a lot of that has to do with modern technology, right? And so how it was first used, the term was first used by Julian Huxley, brother to famous author Aldous Huxley, in an essay that talked about the future of the human species and how it would, in, in a certain sense, uh, evolve our culture and reach new and uh, previously unseen heights of culture. And this is kind of where the whole thing in the late 50s, the term was first used. And then it just kind of evolved, mainly, again, in a sort of philosophical vision. The first transhumanists in the modern sense where like in the late 80s early 90s the extropian movement saw this idea that uh extropianism is the the opposite of entropy right? entropy in a system is just the loss of energy it's chaos it's uh it's the universe getting colder and more chaotic and extropianism positioned itself as sort of philosophical movement to be the opposite of that to increase order and stability, and to kind of make things better over time. So rather looking at the history of the universe as a sort of loss of energy and just rising chaos, it was a sort of positive movement towards the future of saying through modern technology, we can make ourselves better and we can, in a sort of sense, increase order, you know, conserve energy conserve the potential for a future so it has its roots strongly i think in in this sort of philosophical positive outlook towards the future coupled explicitly with modern technology
0: gotcha so it's uh, that broad view of it is more it's not just one or the other it's not just that things yeah. there's a hope but it's coupled only with technology it's kind of going to get us over the quote-unquote hump of our misery part <laughs> of our human existence
1: So technology is a really, really important point for transhumanists. It's not just of increasing what we can do, our capabilities, or improving our condition in ways that we have previously done, but it's in radical ways thanks to modern technology. So the promise Mm -hmm. of overcoming hard biological limits, for example, through uh, advanced prosthetics or through genetic enhancements or gene therapy, right? Or things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of camp do you find yourself falling upon?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a little bit of a weird transhumanist. You have this, when you talk about what is generally known as the post So so sort of the entirety of these movements that somehow come after traditional humanism, of which transhumanism is one, but then there's post-humanism, there's meta-humanism, anti-humanism, there's, there's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting essay by Francesca Ferrando from NYU. She has a sort of explanation of of all of these movements and i kind of find myself moving shifting a little between posts and transhumanism depending a little bit on on the context in which i find myself and also what we talk about specifically so i'm a little mm-hmm. bit of a weird uh transhumanist i guess i don't agree with some of the typical transhumanist positions but i share the general feeling that technology can really help us and be really good with us and i share this feeling that it's Cool, right? That it's mm-hmm. this, as I said, this sort of technophile idea of technology just being something really cool, something that holds a lot of promise if we can use the problem.
0: Yeah. And right now it seems like we're at a point in history where it's largely novelty, as far as like, I, I should say, maybe the cool factor of things. Uh, certainly there's different implications for the field of medicine and, and mm-hmm. certain sciences, but. You get these moments that come in time where everybody kind of remembers their first iPhone and that frictionless experience. And we think, oh, well, now we're living in the future or or some thoughts like that. Um, people, I think, try to strive for ways to delineate things before this marker and things after this marker in interesting ways.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think the core factor is a really big factor in that, right? You just see something new, you see something like... You know, Neuralink, merging man and machine, that's that's a big talking mm. topic. Or space exploration, all of these things. And I agree, it's it's cool, right? And thats I think that is a way in which many people come to the transhumanist movement, or at least learn about transhumanism, right? With a sort of cool factor about, you know, what, what does the future bring? There's so many possibilities. And I think we are indeed in a moment in time in which there's a lot of potential, there's a lot of promises, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Probably some of this desire comes from a kind of an escapist sort of thing where you think about these different technologies and how they can absolve you or take you away from the type of human condition that you find yourself in, whatever it is, and the implications that could have in mass.
1: Yeah, that's. uh, this is where I... Disagree with a lot of other transhumanists is Mm -hmm. that generally, many transhumanists don't think that this is really moving away. They don't see it as escapism, right? They just see it as Mm. the next step in human evolution, potentially self guided evolution, right? So, and many, many transhumanists are, from an ethical perspective, they're utilitarians. They say if something, you know, increases pleasure or takes away harm and suffering, That's generally a desirable thing, and we should do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that things are as clear-cut, as in sometimes there's some things that save you a lot of suffering or, you know, make you feel better, but they're not necessarily good all the time. And it can be some sort of escapism, right? I think Mm -hmm. the most extreme way you could look at it is to say, you know, space exploration. Uh, Jeff Bezos talked about this, actually, about how it would be a really cool idea to build these giant... Uh, self-sustaining spheres high-tech habitats in space where people could live right Mm -hmm. and this is a big transhumanist talking point of saying yeah i mean we can do that we should because this is the earth cannot support us all and why not move away from it why not move to one of these space habitats or why not move to mars Uh, and this is where i disagree because i say if we just move away from our problems like if we just destroy this planet and then move it somewhere else we've learned nothing from it right, right so yeah. it's sometimes it can be a sort of escapism and sometimes you're not ex- exactly sure because yeah it does sound cool and sometimes i would definitely be on board other times however you just have to ask the question why are we even doing that
0: right i mean there's no doubt the race to get to mars all the technology that would bring the kind of advancement to different fields of science those are all amazing things but you're right as far as using as a backdrop to that this underpinning of you know it's to kind of further the human race um yeah. maybe a little disingenuous and of course Jeff Bezos saying that has all these other <laughs> different implications because you can imagine living in a sphere in Mars and you know you report to Amazon every day and yeah <laughs> and only buy their products and uh you know or all that jazz so versus maybe like NASA or a different uh, governmental program. But on the other end of that spectrum, there's people like, uh, and we've talked about this briefly in our dialogues back and forth, uh, Douglas Rushkoff, who is on the self-proclaimed team, Human. Although I I agree that he has a lot of uh, great ideas about the dangers of the, I don't even want to call it uh, libertarian transhumanism. That's a different thing, but certainly um, more of the escapist route. Mm -hmm. Uh, There seems to be a general fear of technology and also um this overall sense of you know we haven't completely closed the book on humans yet um which you know i think in a lot of ways a lot of very important ways we have some objectivity
1: yeah i think i think roshkov's uh positions are really really interesting and i think it's a pity that they're dismissed so easily by transhumanists because i think you can learn a lot from that kind of dialogue. Because, I mean, I don't I don't agree with everything he says, but I think that it's really good that he challenges some of the, let's say, typical transhumanist assumptions, right? About mm-hmm. the glory of the trans or post-human. And he says, no, we aren't team humans. We're quite, as he said, we haven't quite closed the book on the human yet. That, mm-hmm. for example, is something I don't uh, fully agree with because uh, it's not as revolutionary- as you might think, I believe to claim that mm-hmm. we're uh, still human and that we are on Team Human. Right. <laughs> the idea is that the idea is that you can somehow, you know, kind of say what a human being is and keep with it, and that's yeah. a problem for, I mean, for both humanists and transhumanists as well. Saying well, what is the human being, right? You can't really right. define it very easy.
0: Yeah, it's in the title. I mean, it's transhumanism. Yeah. So exactly, should give you a clue.
1: So the idea of transhumanism is to completely overcome the current human and reach a stage of post human existence or what bostrom calls post human condition mm-hmm. um, and and then rushkov's idea is that no we're, we're still human like let us be on team human as opposed to team technology and I think that both of these positions actually make a similar mistake of seeing these two things human and technology as completely separate while they're mm-hmm. not i uh, I see a lot of people talking about you know what are transhumanist technologies? What are technologies that fundamentally change us? And I think that's a bit of a misleading question because there's no such thing as a technology that doesn't really change you, right? Even mm-hmm. in small and subtle ways. Where I did philosophy, where I uh, graduated from, we have a very strong post-phenomenological tradition that goes back to to Martin Heidegger. Mm-hmm. this 20th century German philosopher who who said, you can look at mo- what is the essence, he said, of modern technology. And this was a big part of, of his later work when he says, what is really the essence of modern technology? What is it that makes modern technology so fundamentally different from you know previous technologies? Mm-hmm. And he says that a lot of people usually have fallen to one of three camps about technology. They either for it so they're pro-technology or they're against it they're anti-technology or it depends right most right. people he says they're sort of in camp instrumental technology is not good or bad it depends on how you use it you can formulate that in a modern way as guns don't kill people people kill people with guns right, right yeah. it's, and heidegger says if you have a good or a bad stance towards technology You might be wrong or you might be right. He doesn't really know, but he says, at least you've thought about it, right? You've you've looked at what it does and you've formed your opinion. And if Mm -hmm. you're in camp instrumental, you're so fundamentally wrong because you haven't really thought about what technology does to you. You haven't realized how it shapes you in your daily life.
0: Right. Even by virtue of having an absence of the opinion, you have an opinion. yeah.
1: Exactly. What he kind of says is that technology, modern technology specifically, constitutes us us as human beings but also in general the world as what he calls a standing reserve so basically as resources to be used by technological means it's a little bit dystopian i i completely mm-hmm. agree and there's been you know further elaboration clarification of this concept so uh, what philosophers do nowadays in applied philosophy of technology is to talk less about you know technology with a capital t Not so much about the essence of some technology, but about individual technology. So what does this device do? But the Mm -hmm. fundamental idea hasn't changed, that it still changes you. It changes how you perceive the world, right? So there's really no way of so cleanly separating the human being and technology, because whatever you do with it, it also does something to you.
0: Yeah, we're we're fundamentally unchanged by the world around us, um, the external factors in it. Mm regardless. And uh, yeah, I I completely agree with that. I'm definitely more of the deterministic camp. All these things kind of bombarding us in whatever thing that we think we are, whatever sense of self that we are ultimately comes from an external place. Not to say Mm -hmm. anything about the agency you have uh, about those external things that are bundled inside of you. But yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Heidegger because I'm just looking up here. I was interested to know when he was born or about when what kind of era he grew up in and it looks like maybe the uh, early 1900s so he was probably privy to some uh, major technological advances in his time um, coming so and i wonder how that uh, fluctuates over time you see a big push in technology and then you get more people who are coming out of the woodwork in one camp or the next
1: well a big thing about heidegger that's a little bit controversial is that he was german and as you said beginning of the 19th century there's A lot that happened in Germany at the time, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, just to, you know, understatement of the day, Uh, Heidegger was at least initially on board with the Nazi project because he had this idea. I mean, I I think this is tough to say, but it has to be said to understand his thought, right? And a big part of that, at least initially later, he kind of distantiated himself from from that whole thing um, in the later stages. But early on, he was pretty much on board because, again, he he saw this idea of modern technology that was an expression of power, how it determined the world, how it changed the world. And so his big project, I mean, he lived in a uh, hut, like in the woods and would take his students, his favorite student to go hiking with him. So he had this idea that what we're doing to nature is somehow wrong. Right. And this is something that I think we've kind of overcome the philosophy of technology and saying, oh, I wish we could just, you know, return to some sort of real nature, untouched by bad technology. But this fundamental idea that how we interact with technology shapes the way we perceive the world, I think that's still relevant. And I think that's one big thing we can take away from this still controversial figure of saying, he was right on one thing, and that's that when you use a tool when you use a device to change the world around you it also changes you because you perceive the world as something that you change through that technology
0: yeah absolutely another example that comes immediately to mind is oppenheimer and the atomic mm-hmm. bomb and uh and all the implications there so i'm wondering you know because you subscribe to your specific brand of transhumanism does that translate into how does that translate into your personal life do you have any Cool tech that you're sporting, or uh, <laughs> some RFID chip somewhere inside of your spine, or anything like that.
1: <laughs> There's a cool piece of technology that I have to use because I'm uh, I'm a diabetic, and I use a sort of it's a wearable glucose monitoring device. So basically, what it does, it's a little sort of like plastic crown with a little wire attached, but it's like really, really thin, and you kind of insert that device. Under your skin, so this tiny wire lies between your skin layers, while the top part has a little transmitter and sends the data to your phone. It's really cool tech. Like, it's really, it's really tiny, and it's amazing, especially if you think at... Um, when I got diagnosed, oh god, eight, nine years ago now, I had, like, really bulky measuring devices that I had to carry in a pouch with me every day, wherever I went. And now just this tiny thing that, you know, just inject into your into your skin and you keep it there for about two weeks it's it's really great so I think this is really really cool stuff and so what it does is basically it's, it's this wearable monitoring device and it's and I know for a fact following the research a little bit that the next step that people are working on is to kind of tie that in with some sort of insulin pump so you have like this measuring device and connected to the top part is a little tube of sorts, right, and it manages your insulin automatically so you don't even have to do anything oh wow, that's incredible uh, that's, that's pretty cool stuff, it's still, it's still in the making, they don't have that yet but, I mean, I've seen huge progress done in my, in my time as a diabetic in less than a decade and that's really amazing
0: it's always incredible to hear things like that. How medical science has come along. It seems like that's a field. There's you'll see almost universal acclaim and agreement on is that in that field. It's in, which is really interesting because that most directly addresses human suffering uh, mm-hmm. in the physical.
1: I think it's very fascinating because well, the, the let's say proper transhumanist stance would be, of course, you have this wearable device and it kind of makes you a very a very simple cyborg. Yeah, uh, but the next step would be <laughs> yeah. to maybe get some sort of genetic cure or a genetic, you know, modification that would prevent me or any children I might have in the future to suffer from this or from other genetic conditions right because this is genetic. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the next step. And I firmly believe that it's the next step. However, again, there's this simple way of looking at it of just, you know, we're preventing suffering. So that's good. Nobody should be dealing with this amount of, you know, effort just to regulate something as basic as eating, basically, because that's what it boils down to. Right now. On the other hand, as somebody who has lived that experience, I got to say that being diagnosed with diabetes and then having to work through that whole thing, it helped me to monitor much my health much better and to especially eat much healthier and i'm just wondering whether people who do not get this quote-unquote opportunity whether they will learn the same way this is not to say that you know i don't welcome a cure for this illness it's just Mm -hmm. that i don't think that on a moral philosophical level it's as easy as saying we're just eliminating suffering
0: yeah because although that would be ideal to some degree of course on some levels there's a lot of implications behind it
1: yeah i think the the most what it boils down to the most basic argument you can make is that sometimes not always but sometimes you grow through the difficulties you have to face Mm -hmm. so eliminating all of them is maybe not the ideal step right (laughs) i don't know i honestly don't know but i think it's worth asking these questions
0: Yeah, and there's an argument, too, that you can never truly eliminate suffering, that when you replace one, you just create opportunities for another. Um, And, and, you know, in in some larger degree, suffering is relative. Mm -hmm. It's just as annoying. Some of the same brain activities are happening um, as you're sitting in traffic yelling at somebody as you're having a fight with your loved one. I mean, (laughs) you know. So there's some relativity to it of course. And yeah, how do we can we decouple should we decouple human suffering from the human experience? Is that the transitory human thing that we want to have focused on? And as far as to I'll say, just changing your diet for example, yeah. um, you know, is that considered a transhumanist move in, in a certain light?
1: Well, it was certainly mediated by technology because I had no idea before I started actively monitoring my, my blood sugar levels and manually taking insulin and having to check you know, how much carbs or how much sugar was in the food I was actually eating and what mm-hmm. types of them, so really educating myself about what I was eating every day. And that's something that people do, obviously, without uh, being diabetic, but it's, uh, it's still something that not a lot of people do.
0: Right, and and essentially they're using science like I think of MyFitnessPal and different apps like that. Yeah, They're using science as a means of accountability, as a means of yeah. bettering their life in a way.
1: That's the, yeah, that's the entire premise of this. It's called the quantified self movement uh, of people that basically use a lot of these devices like Fitbits, like their fitness devices or other smart devices to measure as much data as they can from their bodies and kind of use that as as stepping stones to help them improve their health. And I think that's obviously great, right? I think that's good. And people should be doing that. It's it's something that is good for you on a physical level, but also on a Mm -hmm. mental level of getting kind of in touch with what you need and, you know, taking care of yourself. It's important.
0: In this whole argument, we're also assuming that uh, people have the autonomy to uh, do all these things. Uh, certainly, with you, what you could find eventually ha- having that insulin device that will pump some in when mm-hmm. you need it, based on the feedback. But of course, if a company like Pfizer owns that patent to that pump, and a different company owns the the medication, oh, yes. you know, you can imagine a scenario where that could easily get pretty oh. dystopian pretty fast.
1: Absolutely. Um, I yeah, I don't want to you know do do the usual uh, thing of as a European being surprised at american healthcare, <laughs> but i i've, I've read no, the it's news all right. so. i am too <laughs> every day i'm
0: because I'm, you always see these um you know i love the there's this great reddit thread i think it's um, a boring dystopia or late stage capitalism okay. really both of those and there's constantly a common trope is like oh we raised all this money to help this person you know cure their cancer yeah or or whatever and it's like oh great that's such a and we celebrate it here like it's an amazing thing i mean in a in one obviously aspect it is amazing people coming together and this community and all that but in the other more obvious aspect it's like hello this person's gonna die exactly (laughs) this is this person
1: is only surviving because other people went out to you know, spend their own money to help them and that's right. I think that's already yeah. pretty bad. Eat, and yeah, just, <laughs> eat a hot dog
0: and get a shirt and cure somebody's yeah. cancer. You know, and I've like, I've great. read the
1: news uh recently of there's actually Americans uh going to Canada to buy insulin because it's like ten times cheaper, right? You can get a, yeah. a package for thirty dollars Canadian instead of three hundred dollars in the US, which is crazy this this might shock the i don't know the the libertarians maybe that listen to this but i've never paid for insulin in my life because it's all covered by health insurance and it would be really hard for me to live any other way right because this is again hundreds if not thousands of euros per month i mean between the insulin between the measuring devices measuring strips and needles and all the other stuff it comes down to to a lot of materials and a lot of money
0: and forget for a minute how much it would cost, because you're right—that's that's a huge aspect. But just how it would guide your entire life and what yes. you even do for a living, because you you would constantly be worried about, like, well, if I have this, maybe I should work in this field because they pay more. yeah, um, Doing things you don't want to do and just overall having this blanket of inhibiting your autonomy and liberty because you have to have your health first. Sure. Kind of just boggles my mind, and it's just crazy to think about.
1: No, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think that something that again many transhumanists don't really want to deal with because they think that technology will just solve that, right? They say, okay, maybe mm-hmm. such an insulin pump, or you know, the cure for cancer, or the gene cure that will give you eleven out of ten vision forever, right? Right. Eventually, well, it might cost a lot, sure, but eventually. It will cost less as technology advances. So there's a kind of rhetoric of things will just eventually solve themselves, but I don't yeah. personally think that's the case. I also think that history shows that's not always the case, right?
0: Right. So, <laughs> I mean, recent recent history, you know, we yeah, got even, the Martin Scarelli and his, uh, oh, yeah. his EpiPen debacle. I mean, that thing costs maybe a few dollars to make. You charge $700 for it. There is no supply and demand there. It's completely manufactured.
1: Exactly. If you're diabetic or if you need that EpiPen, it's not like you can not buy it. You do need it.
0: Oh yeah, sorry. No, <laughs> I get, but I, I get the pain. I
1: <laughs> like I, I currently,
0: fair. I don't have insurance. Like part okay. of it's because I'm just a cheap bastard, um, <laughs> but the other part is I know that I'm not going to get much for it. I'm one of the many hundreds of thousands here in the United States who just doesn't have it. And hopefully, when the time comes that I need to go to the hospital or something, I can figure something out. Um, it mm-hmm. won't wipe me out completely. And I do empathize a little bit with the position that. Yeah, over time, there will be uh, some technological fix to these things. Because, you know, we have seen some of that to some degree. I don't think now without its externality. But the biggest issue, of course, with that is the here and now. Like, we have to deal with this stuff now, you know? And even the near future, There's these problems cannot magically work themselves out. I think it's wishful thinking to think that there's this narrative. And it could be one in a trillion narrative that will go unimpeded unconditionally into this future where suffering is eliminated it just feels naive to me
1: it i think it is yeah i think it's certainly a nice narrative and i think it's something to strive for yes but we can't expect it to just happen right and Mm -hmm. not, not only that i also think that these so technology there is this sort of idea this narrative of technology and science progressing kind of linearly, right? And we'll just discover more things and things will get better for everyone involved. But when you look at the mm-hmm. actual history of technological developments, very often all of these technologies are developed within context. And this context is social, it's cultural, and it's also political. So you things will not solve themselves unless we work towards solving them now, I believe, and create an environment in which advancements in science and technology are for everyone or at least for the vast majority of people you know the details may vary but i definitely think that this narrative of things just get better is a nice narrative sure but Mm -hmm. it's not really one that we can rely upon
0: yeah and also i always think well so what if they get better in some ways because that to me is what it always translates into. It's getting better mm-hmm. in certain ways, but that doesn't mean you want to stop striving and just yeah. kind of rest on those laurels. So switching gears a little bit, as yeah. we're talking about the political and social sphere of this movement, do you know of any current like legislation that exists that could either be construed as transhumanist or is in a way f- effectively transhuman?
1: Well, you in the U.S. you have Zoltan Istvan, the uh, U.S. presidential candidate with the Transhumanist Party.
0: Okay, I don't think I've heard of him.
1: There is there is actual a Transhumanist Party in the U.S. It's very interesting. Istvan himself is kind of a divisive figure in the movement because he is he's one of those pretty hardcore libertarian transhumanists. I kind of think that radical improvements in technology and science will just solve problems, right? And that we mm-hmm. should just... That good governance essentially translates to into good governance for science and technology and just allowing technological progress. I mean, I know he votes... I think he said some time ago that he votes Democrat, but I wouldn't be so... From a European perspective, I wouldn't, you know, see that as particularly left-leaning. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, we're all a little to the
0: right over here, so... <laughs> It's the reality we have to live in.
1: So, the Transhumanist Party has its own uh, Bill of Rights, which is a sort of attempt at formulating, you know, fundamental rights for transhumans for the 21st century. Uh, it's really interesting because it was developed by members of the Transhumanist Party via electronic vote. So, you could, mm. you know, suggest changes. Well, the first w- w- version was written by Isvan himself, but then he sort of you know, allowed people to make changes, to suggest changes. And eventually you have, the current version is version 2.0. And so you see, for example, right at the beginning, he says the transhumanist Bill of Rights, the term sentient, sentient entities encompasses one, human beings, including genetically modified humans, two, cyborgs, three, digital intelligences, four, intellectual enhanced, previously non-sapient animals. So you see that already the circle of who we consider a person like a subject Mm -hmm. of right, is increased. So uh, that's also a big part of, let's say, political transhumanism, is that it has a lot of affinities with animal rights, of expanding the circle of moral and political consideration to animals, sometimes to the environment itself, uh, or to non-human entities, as they say, for example, digital intelligences. So if if we were to ever develop full general artificial intelligence, we should give them rights. Uh, there's a really fascinating uh, book which is called Robot Rights by a scholar, David Gunkel, who also talks about... He, well, he, he's not a trained humanist, but he, uh, he's been working a lot on the philosophical foundations of what rights for robots, for example, would look like. Robots intended both as, quote-unquote, non-intelligent servitors but also as what are called embodied agents. So artificial intelligences controlling synthetic bodies. And it, it's really interesting. So there's some work being done. It's not a lot because it's not an immediate concern for most people. Right. We're not even there yet for most transhumans yeah. to even be considered. However, there's, there's a little bit obviously that also ties in with you know what do we consider human do transhuman beings enjoy human rights yes no to some degree you have the problem posed by bostrom of existential risk so if we ever create some sort of transhuman superintelligence, they might just wipe us out what regulations should there be to prevent us destroying ourselves through technology all of these things
0: mm. Which, you know, by the way, we've been able to do since the 40s. Yeah. Maybe even before that. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I do sympathize with the folks who essentially say humans can't even get humans right. So what are we doing (laughs) moving on to the next subject? But what I think this Bill of Rights does, and I'll put this in the show notes because I think it's really interesting. It does a fairly good job of really delineating, or at least attempting to, Mm -hmm. uh, the different levels of humanity and taking yes. into account all these other things, you know, every in America, we have a huge hard on for, you know, the Bill of Rights, the yeah. uh, Constitution, uh, which are amazing things. And they were they were great for what they they've done, but we're tied to them. We're tethered to them. Um mm-hmm. Here and, and there doesn't seem to be a way to, especially with Congress and, and our Congress right now and just the political environment right now, it's more obstructionist. So it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to we progress in any form. It doesn't matter which way you're thinking it's going. It seems to be halted. So it's refreshing to read something like this. that takes into account all these different aspects and um, at least giving it a shot.
1: Yeah, this is, I I completely agree. It's great because it really, even if you don't agree politically or if you don't agree on other aspects of transhumanism, you really get the idea that these people are thinking about rights and about a sort of just even considering as beings entitled to rights, beings that were previously just completely ignored, right? For example artificial and rights for artificial intelligence that's something that you're like that's pretty new and that's something that we couldn't have thought about previously when right? it's something that is explicitly transhuman because you can't find any of that in uh, in traditional humans so what you were talking about um about the the constitution the bill of rights All of these, but also most of the constitutions of European states are based on, mostly on traditional humanism, right? So on this idea of the human being that sort of is at the center of creation, not in a religious sense, but just as a sort of mastery over nature of rationality that allows one to understand the world and master it. And then you have this opposite idea in transhumanism of expanding the circle of consideration, saying, wait, maybe animals are entitled to some sort of right. And maybe we should consider artificial intelligences. Maybe we should consider many people together forming a sort of collective awareness because they work together and they share ideas, right? Maybe we should consider them as subject to certain rights, as entitled to certain rights. And I think that's very interesting. This is also a thing in post-humanism, and the two differ slightly in how they go about it, but it's something that... I think is really good meeting point between the two this expanding circle of consideration
0: and also when i think of enlightened humanism mm-hmm. in general i'm thinking of a very eurocentric way of thinking you know it's yeah. fairly monocultured white men in yeah. dark rooms under candlelight um, <laughs> talking about ideas <laughs> yeah versus you know the other camp which is you know more of a collectivist culture and from different collectivist culture viewpoints things like that so we definitely need to, because there's, I think there is value in both of them. Uh, we shouldn't just throw out one for the other. So yeah, this, this is a great start. And as far as the animals are concerned, I am a carnivore. Uh, so I always find that side of things interesting. I'm, I'm definitely all about the Beyond Meat movement here and where that technology is going. But you know, it's, it, and that's actually a really great example of technology trying to outpace this problem. Of all the greenhouse gases and things like that that come from animal production yeah it'll be interesting to see how that goes and any really the quote-unquote problem is that people don't like the way things taste right so it really <laughs> yeah. does come down to an aesthetic choice that people are making about what textures and flavors they like in their mouth versus others which is extraordinarily human issue
1: <laughs> i think so as well and i think it's Well, this beyond meat and lab-grown meat stuff, I think that's really interesting because when you think about it in terms of climate change or environmental impact, right, meat production has such an enormous environmental impact that I, I personally am a vegetarian, not so much because of animal rights, it's something that I care about, but that itself would not motivate me to stop eating meat. But to a large degree, it's just the environmental impact of the whole industry. And I think that, for example, lab-grown meat is a really good technology to overcome some of these problems that we have. Because it's not just a technological fix that allows us to do things the same way we used to, but just better. But it actually forces us to reconsider our way of living because it it interrupts the whole quote-unquote food chain so the whole production chain so it really forces a big change and forces us to reconsider how we where we get our food from and what we eat as compared to I don't know coming up with uh, less impactful ways of creating or feeding animals and getting regular meat which I think would be bad simply because it doesn't really force you to commit to a change. That, that is an important point when you consider which technologies can be useful and can be good. But I think that those that force us to radically reconsider our culture and our, you know, how our society and how we live, those can be really useful if we want to really become transhumans, right?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I was talking to somebody the other day about the possibility of the ethical implications of injecting or creating creatures, you know, modifying a dog in some ways so they would imbue them with more intelligence and kind of the implications behind that. Because right now we see, with dogs specifically, we can easily see the other way, where there's been this artificial selection where these little small show dogs or novelty dogs or whatever you'd call them have troubles breathing and their bone structure's all messed up. So would it be ethical? Would it be worthwhile to imbue something the other way I think we won't see that necessarily in our lifetime, but it's certainly something to think about.
1: I think it's funny that you bring up the uh, dogs, because there is this dog breeder, David Ishii, I think is, is how you pronounce it, in California, who is a DIY biohacker. So biohacking is this idea of just kind of do-it-yourself modifying your body through technological means. and. He, Rather than doing it on himself, he does it on his dogs because he's a dog breeder. He has this big, I don't know, farm house with a lot of land and he had problems finding his dogs at night. So what he tried to do is to kind of synthesize, well, a certain gene sequence from jellyfish mm-hmm. and inject that into puppies to make them glow at night. So this is, this is really <laughs> like interesting. glow in the dark. Yeah, glow like in the dark fur? puppies. Exactly. Like yeah.
0: bioluminescent. The, okay. Some
1: sort of bioluminescent, uh... Well, wow. skin markings sh- shining through the fur. I read about this first uh, at the beginning of the year, and he hadn't had a lot of success yet, but he was, you know, working on it. So this is something that people do in their backyards. even. Uh, biohacking is a really interesting movement that sort of unites this transhumanist idea of modifying yourself, or your dogs in this case, this sort of idea of morphological freedom, with this counterculture, you know, hacking, punk-ish sort of life. And it's really interesting stuff, because the people who do it often do it outside the law, as in, it's not exactly illegal, but none of these methods are FDA-approved or safe, in many cases. And it's a lot of... Just amateurs going crazy with their bodies, uh, I remember a, f- a very famous one if is a uh, Josie Zainner who once held a talk at a conference and injected himself live in his arm with a protein that was su- that he synthesized from s- a certain type of salmon that was supposed to make his muscles grow, so really crazy people it's it's really weird. And really interesting. Like he did it
0: live in front of people.
1: Yes, exactly. I think you can find okay. the video on YouTube or, you know, <laughs> uh, a little bit of a crazy guy, but it, it definitely, there's definitely people who are doing this kind of stuff, experimenting on themselves, uh, which is kind of scary when you think about it because there's stuff that could obviously go wrong, right? You don't really know, none of this is tested. But it's also really fascinating because these people are ready to. Go to really great lengths to get the body they want, or to just tinker with it.
0: Yeah, in some ways, I almost respect the people who do it to themselves versus doing it to another human being, because mm-hmm. at, at the very least, they can always give themselves informed consent. And uh, yes. And uh, the dog uh, breeder you mentioned was, is really interesting because I, I also think of organizations like PETA, which is the most mm-hmm. controversial one here in the States, and yeah. their end game is complete animal autonomy. And it seems like they would be the first ones to fund some type of advancement of mm-hmm. that, however it looked, which is just, I don't know, it's just ironic to me somehow.
1: <laughs> I think I think maybe they're a little bit in disagreement because the typical transhumanist ideas of doing that not for some sort of sense of empathy, but again, this sort of idea we're just eliminating suffering. So we're just making sure that these animals are not suffering, which you can read, obviously, as something uh, that's, that's great, right, and should be encouraged. Uh, on the other hand, you can also read it as some sort of humanization of nature, because you can like, do animals, dogs, cats, animals in the wild, like rhinos, elephants, do they suffer the same way we do? Is nature really that evil or is it just our understanding of it?
0: Yeah, it's the ultimate cultural impasse. We can never truly know the way a dog suffers the same way a dog can can never truly know the way we suffer until 300 years from now and we have cool dog-human hybrids and <laughs> those questions <laughs> have been answered.
1: <laughs> For all the people out there who kind of want to get into this, there's a really, really fascinating and also really easy to read. It's, a, it's a neither very long nor particularly complicated essay of philosophy of mind. And it's called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Mm, and interesting it's- title. It is so by American philosopher Thomas Nagel. and I'm just looking up, I don't remember when it was first published, 1974. okay, so it's it's kind of old. so this this is an old question to ask, right? Mm-hmm. But basically the argument goes, you can't really know what it's like to be a bad because our mental states are so fundamentally different that even if you could communicate verbally, it would still make no sense you could still not know what it feels like
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense the same way if we ever get to a point where we can uh upload our our consciousness our intelligence Mm -hmm. our our meta-awareness to some kind of disembodied state yeah you know we we might feel pains in our in our hard drives (laughs) and our and our power you know we can just we can sense these things we can sense the voltage drops and all these other weird things that we you know and we can only use human language to describe it (laughs) so
1: yeah that's that's a really good point maybe yeah maybe robots don't bleed but what if you leak motor oil or something and uh, you can see this philosophically as there's this concept of uh, embodiment so embodiment is the idea or rather the condition of being a mind in a body and the idea that you can't really separate them. So traditional humanism, and also transhumanism to some degree, has this idea that you're some sort of rational mind living in and controlling a body, while according to you know a view that encompasses and supports embodiment, you're not a mind and a body, you're both together and you can't separate them at all. So the moment you upload your consciousness into a computer or into a robot body, things would be fundamentally different, and you can't possibly think that you wouldn't change that the experience would just leave you you know the same being because it's just not the same
0: yeah and even if you could hop that body into a a more biological frame at least one that more resembles a human or or some kind of mammal there still would be a lot of a lot of changes because with that new shell presents all these different yeah. things, you know, maybe you were a male gender before and, and you decide to pop <laughs> into a female body and all this stuff um, kind of sounds like a bad episode of Altered Carbon. But
1: um. <laughs> I think there was a Black Mirror episode about that or something along those lines yeah
0: yeah there's the most recent season had this great episode where these two friends would jump into this virtual reality and then they ended up having sex with each other and but it didn't translate into the outside world so Mm -hmm. there was this kind of paradox of well, what does this mean like our chemistry as friends clearly makes this thing work but it it doesn't in real life so (laughs) and one of them is yeah they're they're both males and one of them in the scenario is female so there's no there's no clear-cut answers
1: I think so as well. Uh transhumanists other transhumanists I talk to tend to not like Black Mirror. They tend to see it as, you know, technology bad. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that it's a good show. I mean, it's a TV show. So obviously it's not yeah. going to be the most profound thing in the world, but it offers a lot of interesting questions and just straight out refusing to engage with that is I think a bit superficial. Right? Yeah. Sure, it tends to show you the darker sides of technology. But I think there's a point to that to provoke, you know, some to open up certain questions. And I think that's that's worthwhile to engage with.
0: Yeah. I mean, suffering on a human real world scale is different than the suffering we need to look towards when we want to watch good drama. Yeah. I mean, those are definitely separate things. It can at least lead Mm -hmm. to that debate. I mean, other than being entertaining, that's the best thing it can do is try to force us to have these kinds of chats.
1: I think so as well, because uh, in my personal opinion, it is also kind of what makes us human, quote unquote, whatever that means, right? As in, it's still, even if we were trans or post-humans, I believe it would still be an important part of our everyday experience to be confronted with hardship and to kind of learn how to deal with that, even if it's tough and even if we don't want to. And some of that can and should be eliminated, I agree, but just going out and saying that suffering per se is always bad and we should eliminate all of it, I think that's quite dangerous on a personal level, you know, of just personal growth, but also on a political level. I mean, worst-case scenario maybe, but I can imagine a totalitarian government that as soon as you disagree puts you into a labor camp and then gives you happy pills and you just keep working all day and you're happy. Like, that doesn't really sound good, but you're not suffering. So technically... Are you happy?
0: <laughs> That's true. Whether you, in this scenario, you're basically describing North Korea, but with <laughs>
1: with,
0: with better medication, I with guess. better
1: medication, yeah.
0: I mean, there's a certain k- kind of happiness or state of being that you could describe as happy that can be institutionally happy, um, where you're institutionalized in some way or you're serving out a sentence or or something like that. And that can look very different depending on context. It can look like the labor camps in North Korea. It can look like a bad marriage that you just can't seem to escape relative to your circumstance. But yeah, I don't know. It's uh that is an interesting question. I definitely feel that suffering will have to be some part of it because contrast is so important. You cannot enjoy beautiful things without knowing the yeah. darker and bad things.
1: Yeah. And I think you can take that to the extreme where you're like, Oh, some suffering is obviously bad right obviously some things you would rather do without but taking that to the other extreme of saying we should not be suffering at all is equally dangerous i mean to to frame that in a sort of ethical way uh, if we want to talk about virtue ethics and aristotle right there's this important concept in virtue ethics that is the golden mean so that you can have certain virtues such as you know resilience to suffering or kindness that you don't want others to suffer and you can have such a thing as too little kindness and you just let others suffer but you can also have such a thing as too much kindness and it's really important to kind of and you can have too much resilience and never suffer or too little and be completely destroyed by anything that happens to fuck up your day but the, the aim is really to have the right virtues, and to kind of find a middle ground where you're comfortable with those. So, obviously, suffering is bad, but it's also good to have a resilience to it and sort of make the best you can out of a tough situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the reason we can enjoy that type of perspective, at least, I mean, here in the States, and and probably is true for Mm -hmm. most European countries, is that we export a lot of that suffering. Oh, yes. to other places, right? To give us the means to be able to literally do what we're doing right now on these uh, devices handcrafted by hands that uh, are smaller than ours and are more indentured than ours. And mm-hmm. I think that type of suffering people have less issue with. Um, yes. But for some reason, for some reason when we scale that up to something like universal basic income, the arguments for that, like you could construe that work, meaningless work is a type of suffering you know, people who just have a job to have the job. And we we touched on a little earlier um, that have certain professions and things just to have them because they provide insurance and all these other things.
1: I think you touch upon a really good point here that I tried to make in a paper that it's, it's still sitting in my computer. I should probably try and publish it at some point, mm-hmm. Um It's not quite as as worked out as I'd like it to be, but it's there. The idea is there, and it's as good a moment as any to kind of come forth with it. That it seems that in transhumanism, often, and this is something that I, as a philosophy graduate, am very concerned about, there's a sort of lack of moral consideration. As in, you say things like, you know, eliminating suffering is good and extending life. Potentially to make people immortal is good and improving your physical and mental capacities is good. And it always begs the question, why? And it's not to say that it's bad. It's just to say, if, you know, you work a safe job, but it doesn't really make you happy and you have to do that for 200 years, is that really good? Is that a life worth living? Or if you you know if we say that everybody should look the best they can and statistically if you look at what people think is really the kind of physical appearance that people tend to like and tend to find more reassuring is white skin blonde blue eyes and should everybody be a perfect aryan because you know that's that's what we statistically like and so, yeah. so exactly, it sounds really weird. And then suddenly, again, you have to ask these questions. Why is it good? And this is not to say that, you know, it's, it's bad and we should just abandon this transhumanist idea. and said, I think we need mm. to force ourselves to have this conversation. Why are we pushing for these things? Because the moment you ask the question, you can kind of step out of this technology is always good narrative and say, wait, maybe we should use that technological progress to make life more worthwhile rather than just thinking that it will sort itself out
0: yeah and definitely those questions have to be answered in the short term because i think i've heard that too you know the preferences the blonde hair and the blue eyes it's it's uh, reassuring
1: it's not the most handsome but it's the most reassuring
0: oh i see okay and to me that just screams of a cultural impact more so than, you know, a factual basis of anything. And, you know, you could, and the more fragmented cultures kind of become or can become, I shouldn't say that that's another issue too, is um, there's no inevitability there. We can go in a narrative that's more homogenous or it's more separate, but it's still just important to, to look at those things, I guess. So I'm wondering if you could have like a bucket list of things that you would like to see maybe either personally or socially that the transhumanist movement could kind of bring to the table. What what would be at the top of those lists?
1: Um, That's that's a tough one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So again, uh, transhumanism is not a very unified movement. There's a lot of different schools of thought and there's a lot of different movements there's a lot of different ways of even thinking about transhumanism so i think what i would really like oh
0: just sorry i just i guess you, you're right i should narrow it down to your particular no, but brand no, right no i
1: think uh i think that it's it's good to have that and i think we should have more discourse and more exchange as in currently you see that a lot of these different transhumanisms they have kind of their own views of what kind of progress they want what technologies they think are most beneficial and they kind of exist in their own little pockets and i think this should be more on an academic level there is a degree of exchange both between different transhumanisms and between transhumanism and post-humanism but i would like to see that a little bit more on the like in the general population people that are interested in it and as i said a lot of people i think come to transhumanism kind of with this idea of science fiction of, you know, tech is cool, which I think is really good. But on the other hand, you need to kind of become more critical of that received narrative at some point. Sure, it's cool, but it's not only cool, it may sometimes be dangerous because of the social and political context in which it originates, right?
0: Yeah, and there may be tropes that are more important than the classic Terminator technology destroys everything or... (laughs) technology saves everyone or like in the movie her it's like you can have a whole relationship yeah now all these things so there's a lot of interim steps
1: Mm. so my bucket list is kind of more discourse ideally this is my personal opinion kind of recover and appropriate a sort of cyberpunk ish feeling so not transhumanism for the rich and powerful You know, not the Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk transhumanism, but cyberpunk transhumanism, right? Using it in radical ways to challenge power and harnessing the potentially radical transformative powers of technology. This ties in with, so transhumanism has this core idea of morphological freedom that you can do to your body whatever you want. And I personally like to formulate that in a negative manner. So there's a difference between positive and negative rights. Positive rights are things that you can actually do. And negative rights are things that are not prohibited. And I like to formulate negative freedom, negative morphological freedom, as nobody can interfere with your bodily freedom. You can do with your body what you like. So freedom of expression, freedom of physical expression, through technology, through, you know, whatever you want but rather than encouraging it, we should first step, I think, focus on making sure that everybody can enjoy this freedom from interference with the body, which I think is, is an important first step.
0: Yeah, I think that's a huge, huge first step. One of my big social bucket list items for transhumanism, and that's uh, data privacy rights, likeness rights. I feel like if we don't get that part right, however the actual tech plays out kind of won't matter because it's going to be very very controlled or Mm -hmm. we're just going to get a situation where you have a black market and there's things are hacked and all this all these kind of externalities
1: just to mention you're going somewhere with your cool new prosthetic and facebook always knows where you are because it's a facebook arm right it's 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 pretty sketchy so you probably want that whole privacy thing well figured out is is a big word and i think it will take a long time at least having some good frameworks in place for
0: it. Yeah, and the, the discussion uh, kind of always just feels at least right now it just feels dead in the water because, you know, we have somebody who tweets out bullshit every day and then that takes the news cycle. It's like ISR Roman, it's just kind of <laughs> moving back and forth where the ring he thinks the ring is, you know.
1: No, no, I think I think that's absolutely a, a fair concern and I kind of wanted to <laughs> insert a little bit more philosophy here that so you get this idea that somehow again, you can't really separate Man, or in this case you know human culture and politics from technology anymore right you have people tweeting about literally anything that's happening in society continuously i mean just this last saturday something happened in italy so i'm, I'm half italian so i'm following italian politics so there was a an unsolved murder case and a, a north african immigrant went to the police to testify because they were an, an eyewitness and then a newspaper sent out a tweet and later published an article that said that this guy was actually being investigated for the murder and that obviously fed into a lot of right-wing propaganda in italy was retweeted and shared on facebook and twitter however many times uh even by the minister of the interior and eventually, people found out that the pictures of this arrest were absolutely fake. So these, the, these arrest pictures were fake, and this guy was not under investigation. He had just come to testify. And this thing was shared by police officers in the first place. So fake news shared by police officers. It's a really weird thing, right? And wh- I think what we should focus on, however, is not so much that, oh, you know, somebody published fake news. Somebody lied to us. It's more than, why do we even care about stuff on facebook on twitter like facebook and twitter and other social media have completely hijacked political discourse to the point that they are political discourse right our politics are by now completely technological think about the uh, cambridge analytica scandal right and how much that has influenced u.s election and the whole brexit disaster (laughs) i think that there's the philosophical aspect comes when this is really nothing new. This reminds me of Jacques Ellul, this French philosopher of the 19th century, who wrote about technocracy in explaining it as technocracy is a situation in which technology is so ubiquitous and so ingrained in everyday life but also so complicated than, that nobody really understands it anymore, except for those that the technologists, so the computer scientists, the engineers, the tech CEOs. So you have the political sphere that is technological and is so complicated that nobody understands it anymore. I mean, think about Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress, right?
0: Oh, and man. If, Oh, God. That it hurts to think about.
1: It, it hurts because none <sighs> of the people in Congress knew what they were talking about. Yeah. The problem is not privacy it's not Mark Zuckerberg it's that nobody understand what's going on except for the people that work on these things.
0: It felt more like somebody from Geek Squad was explaining <laughs> to their grandfather how to use their phone or something. It, it was, was really it was
1: really strange and I think that's that that's a big problem because these people then obviously get a lot of political power, but they have no political interests and they have no political accountability, right? the The ultimate goal is to make a profit, and that's
0: it. Yeah, the accountability is really the, the biggest issue I mm-hmm. I see because yeah, they and they were never intended to have accountability. They oh, yeah. were never intended to be some fonts of journalistic integrity. They were just intended to create a giant IPO and sail away. So. <laughs> So that's kind of the social bucket list thing. So is there anything personal that you would love to see happen maybe in your own life? I know we talked about the upcoming innovations with insulin and that technology, but is there anything else that comes to mind?
1: I'm a big fan personally of magnetic implants. They're already a thing, but to have them become a little bit more sophisticated and useful in everyday life, so you can implant uh, tiny magnets, usually in your fingertips, and what they do is they allow you actually it's really interesting because research has shown that when you have them your brain actually slightly rewires itself it's almost like a sixth sense where you can feel electromagnetic fields to some degree slightly there is this uh person who recently got implants that i'm talking to that um after a while you know getting accustomed to it it takes a little bit of time but they could feel, for example, at a library check out the, so that the security part where you have to walk through, right? And they were projecting a magnetic field that he could feel in his fingers. This is really interesting wow. stuff. So you kind of gain a, a deeper understanding of your environment, which I think is really yeah. fascinating. So getting these things a little bit more, because they're pretty crude at this point, I would say.
0: Yeah, to me that's that's fascinating because it seems like we really have a hardware issue on our hands with our body, and in so, in so many ways, and so much of all the advancement in all sciences is, is kind of been to course correct for some of our design <laughs> flaws. So, but yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I would love to, uh, maybe, man, I'd love to talk to that <laughs> person just to see what's what's going on.
1: There's a website you could also look some of this thing, these things up. It's called uh, Dangerous Things. They have various implants uh, for sale. So, little magnets for your fingers, uh, small RFID chips that get implanted into your uh, hands between your thumb and your index. I held one of those in my hand. I haven't actually, I don't have one, but I held one in my hands. I've done some (laughs) research on it, presented that research. It was really fascinating. Um, There's a startup hub in Sweden, like a company that does that. So, the employees can implant RFID chips in their fingers. And it allows them to, you know, open the doors to their offices, clock in and out, pay for food in the cafeteria, all that kind of stuff. And maybe I think that's really fascinating. And it obviously becomes more useful the more people decide to use it, because obviously there will be the infrastructure to use it. Right. However, again, there's a privacy issue, because especially if it's your workplace that does that to you. Right. Can they just control are you carrying a piece of your employer with you every day, even, you know, in your home. So there's obviously privacy issues, but I think that the technology itself is fascinating and it's something that I would really like to be more useful and more regulated because I don't think that privacy regulation is bad. I think if we have good privacy regulation in place, these things are amazing and they can make your life so much easier and also so much more enjoyable because, again, as I said, it's just cool. It's fascinating. The cool factor definitely plays a a role.
0: See, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little on the fence about that stuff. Um, I'm kind of as off the grid as I can be. I have like an iPod touch instead of a cell phone and I use like <laughs> text free apps. No social media other than, you know, what we use for the show. I, LinkedIn is as far as I really go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of have my foot in both camps. It's equally fascinating though to me. Jan, yeah, as we kind of come to a close, is there anything that you would like to plug or, or have people know where you head out?
1: I think I've given you a few, a few cool uh, things, some websites, a lot, a lot of stuff I think I've talked, about too many philosophers probably from <laughs> from <laughs> aristotle to heidegger so spans a very very large time frame yeah. um one thing maybe for people who are listening in who are interested in transhumanism or transhumanists who are listening in is that so i get this cool factor thing and i think it's important because it's something that as i said is cool but what i would like to say is that don't forget the present just because you fell in love with the future right there's a lot of things that we need to think about right now to make that future as good as we can so things won't solve themselves so it's it's a good idea to think about them now
0: absolutely ian thank you so much for your time um it's been a pleasure and i i hope i've been able to keep up to some degree Um,
1: oh absolutely great
0: you know i'm just like i said i'm just armchair guy when it comes to this stuff and uh, hopefully the the audience has learned a a little bit more about the philosophical underpinnings of all this fun stuff
1: okay i hope i did my best to to explain things as clearly as possible yeah thanks for having me
0: all right absolutely and that'll be it for things we think about we'll catch you later
1: if you enjoyed the podcast remember to like and subscribe to our youtube channel you can find more things we think about discussion on reddit at r slash we think about if you're interested in
0: contributing to the show our patreon information is available in the description of the podcast as well
1: as on any of our youtube videos